0: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigat, and as always, I'm very glad to have you with us. I I do have to say that if you were only going to join us for one show this week, and it's today, you've picked a good one. Uh, Because we are very honored uh, to have a special guest uh, whose insights and knowledge about Ukraine and Russia are extraordinary. I'm going to introduce him in a minute. Before I do, let me introduce uh, my Thursday partner, on this show, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kevin, I'm glad you're here with us today as well.
1: You know, I'm really looking forward to this one, Bill. Um, This show is always great, but today to have the the guest that you're gonna talk about here in a minute is a special privilege for us.
0: I think that's right, Uh, and Kevin, I've always said that your uh, title, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is an impressive one, but I want to say that our guest today, uh general philip breedlove uh he's uh going way beyond uh, uh your title uh general breedlove the um supreme allied commander of europe and the u.s european command commander uh philip breedlove uh, was over he oversaw uh u.s and allied troops in afghanistan kosovo as well as all nato operations across europe and the Mediterranean. And now, General Breedlove, you are a distinguished professor at the Sam Nunn uh, Institute School at Georgia Tech. And we really are very honored that you would take the time to join us today. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you, Bill, for having me. I look forward to our conversation.
0: Um, We're also going to be joined um, by uh, Tammy Greer from Clark Atlanta University, a political science professor there, and Alan Abramowitz, uh, professor emeritus of political science at Emory University. And later in the show, uh, General Breedlove has very generously offered to join us for the first half of the show. And later in the show, we'll talk about uh, uh, politics, election politics uh, with Abramowitz and Greer. General, let me start, if I may, with a question that I think a lot of people are curious about. Um, We do know that Russia seems to, in the last couple of days, have made some advances. We know that they are now, uh, their troops have now uh, encircled the port of Maripol. Um, They were able to take control of the first major city in Ukraine, Kherson, uh, in the last 24 hours or so. But by all accounts, their advances have stalled in many places. We're told that there is some low morale among Russian troops, that there's been miscommunication, poor execution. General, how do you describe um, the way in which the Russian military has performed in all this? What does it tell us about the military?
2: Well, I think the first word that jumps to mind is surprised. I think we were all surprised. Uh, let me first say a positive note. We were incredibly proud and pleasantly surprised by the performance of the military of Ukraine. Um, I was just over there several weeks ago, two weeks ago, and one of the things we heard over and over is that America's focused completely on the forces. That Russia is bringing to bear and what we may have missed was the things happening inside Russia but also to my point about pride what we missed was the preparation of the Ukrainian military for this battle and they have performed admirably in the face of immense overmatch so to your point and to your question yes we are a bit surprised at at a lack of performance uh, uh, by the Russian military. But before we go further into that question, let me just make sure everyone understands even though Ukraine is performing well and Russia is not performing well, the overall mass, mass that Russia is bringing at Ukraine is going to end up in a predictable result if Ukraine continues to stand alone in
1: this battle.
2: So before we discuss the problems of the Russian military let's not forget what we expect to happen now even with poor performance the basic mass and the tactics the scorched earth tactics of Russia are going to cause uh, Ukraine immense pressure. So um, to your uh, points uh, of
0: Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. general. To no, your point about the po- performance Go ahead.
2: To your, to your points about the performance of the Russian military, yes. And I think there's two things to think about. One, I believe Mr. Putin and his leaders grossly uh, assumed some bad things. They thought this was going to be over quickly. Um, and Frank, In fact, I think to some degree they felt like that they would almost be welcomed into this country because they have a a real bad understanding of the Ukrainian people outside of a few pockets in the very east. Secondarily, I think that the militaries prepared for a very short conflict. They thought this would be over in just a couple of days. And so their provisioning, their supplies, the way that they assembled and moved their forces forward were under a bad assumption. And And what you saw is what played out immediately on about day three. Tanks were running out of gas, um, and soldiers were running out of food. One of the very first groups that were captured in the extreme northeast, the first thing out of the Russian soldier's mouth was, do you have anything to eat? And so I think that uh, this is an indicative thing. And and for me, as as a, a commander, Um, one of the things that surprised me because we thought Russia was better at it is that we haven't seen a true combined arms uh, attack. We haven't seen that combination of air, artillery, and armor. It's more just application of brute force, stop, fire, indiscriminate artillery, application of brute force, stop, fire, um, indiscriminate artillery, and it's not that well-honed
0: uh, team that we expected. Uh, I, I didn't mean to uh, step on your, your comments, and I apologize uh, for that. I want to bring the other, uh, uh, the rest of the panel in in a minute, but I do want to follow up uh, uh, briefly on, on what you have said already. You gave an interview to Foreign Policy uh, recently, and, and here's one of the things you said to them. You said, are we going to sit and watch while a world power invades and destroys and subjugates a sovereign nation? Are we just going to watch? Is the West going to tolerate Russia doing this to Ukraine? What if the Russians do what they did in eastern Syria? They drop barrel bombs, make rubble of cities, terrorize citizens, and you go on from there. So with that in mind, what what are you uh, looking for the United States and our allies in NATO to do at this point.
2: So So let me just back up and emphasize something you said. Something that I sort of predicted several days ago or is now playing itself out. It is uh, in Kharkiv, or as they pronounce it, Hakiv. Um, this area is now coming under that style of attack that we saw in Eastern Syria. In Chechnya, Grozny, in the past wars, where essentially uh, Russia is dehumanizing, removing humans, uh, indiscriminate bombing, uh, causing terror with their weapons in that city. And, uh, and sadly, sadly, I believe that's going to begin in Mariupol, in the, the very important uh, port on the southeast side of Ukraine. Mariupol has now been surrounded by uh, Russians, and and they learn their lessons in Kharkiv. If they go into these built-up areas with their armor, the armor gets destroyed. And so I think now uh, many are predicting that Mariupol will now come under this indiscriminate bombing, shelling, etc., to dehumanize Mariupol or to force their surrender. Of course. Uh, is probably the objective. So yes, those things are happening. So I asked last night at the end of a, of a interview on a, a major outlet, and my final question to them was, how many Ukrainians have to die? How many Ukrainians have to die before the world begins to say enough? and, and we take some action. And there is, this, there is this completely understandable and, and valid concern that we not get in a war with a major nuclear power. We try to avoid wars between major nuclear powers. And so the question I think the West has to ask itself is, are there steps prior to that that we could take that could actually help Ukraine? Now, let's... Give credit where credit is due. The West is doing a wonderful job now. They started very slow. We were in a period of what I call passive deterrence, and we started very slow. But now we are working hard to get stuff to Ukraine, to get weapons, capabilities, supplies. Real soon now, I was just reading this morning several organizations trying to put together – medical aid because we're to, we're seeing more and more civilians killed and wounded now we're going to need to get some medical aid into ukraine but the west is finally now starting to move capability to ukraine yes we're doing that in a military sense but what we're not doing is helping ukraine militarily we are watching ukraine stand alone fight alone against one of the world's major superpowers, and that major superpower is now indiscriminately applying force to the people and the army of Ukraine. And so I asked the question last night, and I'm, I'm ready to ask you the same question. How many Ukrainians have to die?
1: General Breedlove, um, you are, of course, an Air Force general, you know, uh, by trade, and um, one of the things that a lot of people have suggested is a no-fly zone, and this has been a debate. Um, so talk about that idea and its complications, because it's not as simple as it seems to a non-military person, uh, I think, and it, but it does—it continues to come up.
2: Yes, and it's, uh, it is uh, a topic that's always around me because I was one of the ones that started the conversation. Um, uh, in the foreign policy article, of course. Um, so, so there are, you hit it right on the head, Kevin, there are problems with no fly zones when they are purely a military no fly zone, because when you tell someone I'm going to project a no fly zone on this area, that means that I'm going to control it in the air. And I'm also going to control your ability from wherever you are to shoot into my no-fly zone. We're not going to put our aircraft up patrolling a no-fly zone and allow the enemy to fire from his safe area in and kill our airplanes. Does that make sense, Kevin? And then I'll go on.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: So, so now if we say we are going to do a military no-fly zone in an area, and we have a determined enemy that is trying to deny us that lo- that no-fly zone, we will have to fire upon his capabilities to suppress them. And that is an act of war. If we go up there and start firing into Russia or to Belarus to kill these systems that Russia has placed there to project their ability to control Ukrainian airspace, we would have to take those away from you or suppress them. And so that's an act of war. And that's why every time I talk about uh, a no-fly zone, I try to make everyone understand what that means. This is not trivial. And this is tantamount to having a war between two nuclear powers. And this is not to be done lightly or even considered lightly.
0: Uh, General, uh, you did isn't... tell foreign policy that you support the idea of a no-fly zone despite the the, uh, the warnings you, you give.
2: So you'll see today, I hope, an op-ed that will come out discussing what we call a, um, a, a humanitarian no-fly zone, whereby we make a declaration to the opponent. We are here solely for humanitarian purposes we will not fire upon you if you do not fire upon us. And possibly we, we institute that no-fly zone only in the western side of Ukraine in order that we in the west can begin to help in a humanitarian way all of the people that are now coming under the destructive, relentless firepower of Russia and all of these dead and wounded that are being created in Kharkiv, in Mariupol, uh, in Kherson, all of these places where the Russians have already essentially surrounded and, and are turning out um, bodies and, and wounded. So so I believe that there should be a discussion. I, listen, I'm not in the military anymore. I don't command NATO anymore, and I certainly don't pretend to tell my president what to do. But I'm trying to and others are trying to start a conversation uh, which which would allow us in some way to help directly the people of Ukraine.
0: Ellen, I know you want to get a question in.
3: Yeah, first of all, I want to thank the general for giving a a very excellent overview of the of the situation uh, on the ground in Ukraine right now. And, And certainly I sympathize very much with his with his point about um, the feeling that we need to try to do more or something to try to stop this humanitarian disaster that's unfolding there. Um, you know, but get, given that, in, in my view, the United States is not going to intervene militarily in, in Ukraine direct directly. We're not going to send troops in. We're not. We're not I don't think we're going to. Uh, try to enforce a no-fly zone over, over Ukraine because of the risk of a military, direct military confrontation. That's just my view of what's likely to happen. But what I want to ask uh, about is, do you think the, the Russians are in any way prepared to bear the cost of a long-term military occupation of uh, Ukraine, or a large part of it? Uh, because it seems to me, based on what we've already seen, that the costs of that are going to be enormous for, for the Russians, I mean, certainly there'll be big costs for the Ukrainians as well. But uh, we're, we're, it's clear that there's, there's, there's I think there's going to be a lot of resistance uh, to, to the uh, Russians if they try to carry out that occupation. And so, you know, what are the implications of that for, for Putin and his standing back home? Can he survive that uh, as well as some of the sanctions that are being put in place on some of his you know cronies? Uh, who are being barred now from enjoying the the fruits of their uh, ill-gotten wealth?
2: So this is a magnificent question, and it's absolutely pertinent. If you remember, three months ago, at that time, we were talking about how stretched Russia is just to maintain its proxy forces and support its proxy forces in the Donbass before this fighting began. Mm. Russia's economy is uh, not a strong one before the war, and it's absolutely a petrochemical uh, uh, economy. And uh, they were struggling just to um, to maintain that uh, Donbass pocket and their, their forces, which were in there. Everybody said they weren't in there, but they were in there supporting the proxies and the proxies. And so the point here is extremely important because there are many of us that believe that before all of these sanctions, they would have still had a big problem maintaining control economically. And in a minute, I hope you ask me about militarily, but they would have a problem maintaining control uh, in a in in the the ability to to finance uh, taking a bigger part of of Ukraine. So it's a wonderful. Um, um question and i think it's absolutely pertinent and now um, that we in the west and i uh, applaud what has been done with sanctions uh, we're going to make it horribly hard on him to do it uh even more so than before the war started so um this is uh this is a good question and um, it's important may i though add a thought about sanctions um, so, so after '08, when Georgia was invaded and two, almost 20% of Georgia was occupied by Russia, and they still occupy South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia. Um, after that, we sanctioned Russia, the Russians, and and I'm here to tell you that our response was inadequate to task because for a lot of reasons, but one of them, the failure to hold them accountable for 08 resulted in them invading Ukraine again in 14. Now, there were other things, don't get me wrong, but one of the factors was they saw what we did to them after 08, and they said, we're good to go, we can survive. So they went into Ukraine twice, they invaded and occupied Crimea, and they still Occupy today the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea. Do not get confused by Russian uh, uh, malarkey about whose Crimea belongs to. It belongs to Ukraine. And so Kevin? in 14, Oops. we didn't answer again. The West's response was inadequate to task. And while that is not all the reasons why they're going into Ukraine today, it is, I believe, a big part of why they're not why they're going into Ukraine today, because we did not adequately address the invasion in 14. So here's what has happened. After 08, we put on sanctions, and those sanctions hurt Russia, they hurt the Russian economy, and they hurt the Russian people. After 14, we put on sanctions. They hurt Russia, they hurt the Russian economy, and they hurt the Russian people. But what they did not do, what they did not do is change mr putin's behavior the measure of merit is not how much we hurt russian people and how much we hurt the russian economy the measure of merit should be that we change mr putin's behavior and we have not done that yet sanctions are o for two there and we were using sanctions or the threat of sanctions to try to deter him from going into ukraine that didn't work either, and so we're 0 for 3 uh, there in, in baseball parlance. Now, the Kevin, good news oh, is I'm I believe these <laughs> sanctions are different. <laughs> the good news is I think we're putting on much tougher sanctions now, and maybe they, in the end, might affect Mr. Putin's behavior. But they're not right now, and, this, and Ukraine's going to pay a heavy, heavy, one more time, heavy price. While we figure out whether these sanctions are going to work,
1: General Breedlove, speaking of uh, Mr. Putin's behavior, as you refer to it, the terrifying question I think for almost all of, uh, for almost all Americans, is the nuclear question. He has, he has hinted, uh, implied—I don't know what quite the right word is—that he'd be willing to go there. And it's become clear he thinks about his nuclear arsenal very differently than Americans think about um, our nuclear arsenal. So talk about the risks there and what the guy might do. And, I mean, can you offer any comfort to Americans on this? Uh, short
2: answer, Kevin, is no. Um, and I, I appreciate the word you're using. I don't use the word hinted. I, I would tell you that if you go back and look at Mr. Putin. Uh, as he has made speeches and talked about nuclear weapons when he did the big rollout a couple of years ago of all the new stuff that they were bringing on board. And if you look at what his generals, General Grosimov and others, are writing about all the time, Mr. Putin and Russia intimate all the time in their writings and their speeches that nuclear weapons are a logical extension of the conventional battlefield. Okay? That is a major difference from the way the West looks at nuclear weapons. We separate nuclear weapons from conventional fighting. But in Russia, they know that they could not face a fully generated NATO. They couldn't. And so they threaten that nuclear weapons will be a logical part of how they fight in order to try to keep NATO and other Western powers divided on the issue. So the sad news is there is no comfort here. The Russians talk about it and write about it. And they often do what they talk and write about. So I think we have to seriously consider uh, what Mr. Putin says about nukes. All of that having been said, I think any human being knows there's, there's a threshold there. Uh, And one would hope that some amount of sanity would prevail. But we have to respect what they say and what they write. I hope that helped, Kevin. Uh,
0: So, General, I know Tammy Greer wants to get a question, and we also have to take a break, but— You've worked with journalists for a long, long time in your positions. You know what we're like. We never get enough. <laughs> we, we agreed that we would uh, talk with you uh, until about 930. Is there a chance you can stay with us a little while longer? Your, your conversation is so fascinating. Terrific. Then let's take a break. We'll come back and have more uh, with General Philip Breedlove and our panel. <laughs> We're very honored to be, excuse me, joined today by General Phil Breedlove, who is now at the Sam Nunn School at Georgia Tech as a distinguished professor, but uh, has retired as NATO's supreme allied commander in Europe. Um, And in fact, um, we're also joined, of course, by Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC. Glad to have him with us. Tammy Greer of Clark Atlanta and uh, Alan Abramowitz from Emory. What One quick note, and I know Tammy wants to get a question in general. Uh, you talked about uh, uh, you, Russia moving into Crimea um, and eastern uh, uh, Ukraine. Um, you were, in fact, supreme allied commander in 2014 when those incursions took place. And so you have a, a complete understanding of how Russia – uh, uh, you know, moved in and took over those areas.
2: Yes, it was a it was an interesting time of uh, of our world's history, and it was an interesting time in my life as I took over the SECURE. If you remember, we were in the drawdown in in Afghanistan. We were reimagining the um, mission there from war to. Uh, trying to help Afghanistan establish themselves. And then, uh, and then of course, we had this build-up for an exercise in um, that part of the world, and then, boom, Russia went in, invaded, and occupied uh, Crimea. And uh, several months later, uh, invaded and occupied the Donbass, and then, of course, left behind support troops, and ensconced their proxy forces in the Donbass, and so working through the West's response to that was interesting. And just for two more seconds, I was pretty proud of what NATO did. NATO made the biggest changes in its history to its readiness, in its preparedness, and the way that we the way that we uh, give forces to the fight. It, it, we really made a lot of changes. And NATO has done even more since then. So I'm proud of how NATO in the end responded to the fact that Russia has proven that it's not a partner in this world, that it is an opponent in this world.
0: Tammy.
4: Thank you, General Breedlove, for being here with us. Um, So I I have a a question um, for the people who are not part of, you know, the inside baseball that is politics. Help um, us understand, you know, why does it matter to um, US um, U.S. citizens about what is happening between Russia and Ukraine? Help us understand why it matters to us and why should we care about what's going on.
2: This is a wonderful question again and it's talked about a lot because and and I you know I I told you before the show I grew up in small town America and not many people in small town town America understand what Ukraine is frankly sadly a lot of people couldn't put their finger on it on the map if they were asked to um and so there are two lines of logic here the first line is very few people understand that Ukraine is a big, highly technical industrial uh, nation. Uh, not too long ago, every space shot we did was flying on a on a motor built in Ukraine.
4: Um, uh, Ukraine
2: is also the breadbasket of Europe. That central part of Ukraine is like our Midwest, producing grain and corn for huge uh, portions of the world. And um, if you've ever been, and I've been there uh, maybe now a dozen times, if if you've ever been to Kiev or Lviv or any of these places, this is an amazing, beautiful, uh, culturally connected part of the world where people uh, live a, a life very similar to ours. On the flip side... Should we be concerned that a major world power is using its military force to cross internationally recognized borders and alter the map in Europe? I mean, this has started two world wars in the past. Should we be worried about that? I think so. And let's just talk about the human toil. I mean, these are real people, real families. Real children that are being killed, that are being herded like cattle, that are being terrorized by these forces, and and should we be concerned about that? I certainly am, and I would hope that my brothers and sisters here in America who live in peace uh, could do that too. I don't mean to get emotional, but this, to, on a certain level, is a bit emotional. Uh, General. Well, that, that,
3: Thank you again, what? General Breedlock. Alan and then oh. Kevin. Alan and then Kevin. Sure. Um, yeah, that that's, that's a pretty convincing argument to me. And, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'd agree that we also need to be concerned about where Putin would set his sights next. Um, if he achieves success here, we have to be concerned mm. about the Baltic Republics. We have to be concerned about Poland, other countries that are part of NATO. Um, so uh, and, and we don't want to encourage Putin to push further. The other question I wanted to ask, going back to what Kevin asked about earlier, though, about nuclear weapons, is that whether you think – when people think about nuclear weapons, I don't think they necessarily understand that using nuclear weapons wouldn't necessarily have to mean, uh, you know, blowing up entire cities, <clears throat> um, the, the kind of all-out uh, nuclear warfare that, that you know, we've, everyone has <clears throat> thought about in their nightmares, but rather that if Putin is pushed into a corner – that he might consider, for example, using a tactical nuclear weapon uh, and a, a way of sort of a demonstration uh, a, against uh, a target uh, in, in Ukraine uh, if he is backed into a corner uh, as a way of saying, uh, you know, a, 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 as a, another form of a threat and saying, you know, m- where he might you know, we might worry that he would go even further. Uh, if, if we don't you know, capitulate or reach some sort of uh, compromise uh, with him?
2: So, again, a wonderful question. Uh, and, and maybe I could offer you a different idea on where he might go next. I do believe that Mr. Putin understands a NATO country and a NATO boundary. And so I would have a different list than you propose. You know, I think that Mr. Putin is basically now taking over Moldova. Okay, we didn't like the president of uh, – I'm sorry, not Moldova, Belarus. Excuse me, Belarus. Um, we didn't necessarily like the president of Belarus, and his his uh, record on democracy and human rights is not a good one. But, but we have to also acknowledge that to a certain degree – He's stiff-armed Mr. Putin for for many years now. As Mr. Putin has wanted to move in there with military force and all sorts of things, um, he has pushed back on that. And so while we sort of hold our nose and like him, um, he has at least been uh, uh, opposed to some of Mr. Putin's ideas. I think that's over. I think Mr. Putin is completely in charge of Belarus now. That will not change. He may or may not leave the president there, but he will definitely ensconce all of his people, and Belarus will be more of a Russian puppet than they were before. I worry about Moldova. Uh, Russia already has left there against Moldova's wishes, the garrison in Transnistria, and I think that Moldova could be one of the next. I think that Georgia, which is, now occupied, 20% of Georgia is now occupied by uh, Russia. I could see them deciding we're just going to consolidate that. I think what we need to be careful in the way that we treat this conflict to not send a signal to Mr. Putin, okay, I mean, how many times have we said we're going to defend NATO? So are we sending him the message that everybody outside of NATO is fair game? And do we as the Western world send that signal in the way that we approach Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera? Um, And I know I'm, again, uh, this is my opinion, not our government's opinion or the military's opinion. Let me also address the tactical nuclear weapons question, again, is wonderful. Um, I don't think that the first time he would do a demonstration, he would actually use it on a target. Back in the days where Phil, Captain Phil Breedlove and his F-16 was a part of the nuclear force, what we talked about all the time was Russia doing what we called either a tree blowdown or a water spout, popping off a nuke out over mm-hmm. some water where nobody's really hurt, but just a signal to saying, you people are messing around in the wrong business, and I'm serious. Or we would talk about a tree blowdown, a place where there was no tactical utility, and no people to kill, but we might pop off a weapon to, um, to again, send that, send that signal that you do not understand how serious I am. So your question's wonderful. My personal opinion is that he's at least smart enough to probably not do that on a, a real tactical target the first time. Rather, he would do it in a place just mm. to make a point.
1: Just, Kevin. General Breedlove, speaking of, of tactics and strategies... Um, What about the cyber uh, attack possibilities? I mean, what are the capabilities on both sides? And, you know, back to your no-fly zone, is that – is such an attack also tantamount to, uh, you know, attack on someone's territory? And we've heard bits and pieces about that, and I think all of us are curious about what the capabilities that the United States has, Ukraine and Russia
2: so let's dissect that from the beginning a little bit. NATO has been talking some time now about when does a cyber attack become an Article 5 issue. And we all understand what Article 5 means. And, and uh, we, we don't have to go very far back to remember that Russia essentially took down an entire Baltic nation for a small amount of time with cyber attacks. And cyber attacks are happening all the time. They're happening in our country. Right there in Atlanta, Georgia, what happened to your oil prices when a cyber attack shut down a major supply chain on fuel? And so uh, Russia is fighting in cyber all the time, everywhere. They were in our last elections. They're going to be in our next elections. They've been in elections in Europe, et cetera. And when we were there a couple of weeks ago, our delegation, this is one of the things that President Zelensky said to our delegation. He said, your Western press is so focused on the buildup of Russian forces, what you're not following are the cyber attacks and other episodes of sabotage that are going on in my country right now. So Russia has been attacking Ukraine steady in cyber for some time, and and it's a problem.
0: Um, General, I want to go to the human side of this for a couple of minutes, because you you introduced that in talking about the way in which uh, this war is affecting the people of Ukraine. First of all, of course, there's tremendous damage, infrastructure damage, human uh, damage in terms of the the attacks. Uh, But I want to talk about a positive side of all this. up until not long ago, much of the world viewed President Zelensky as an anomaly, if not an outright kind of joke. I mean, here's a guy who is an actor and a comedian who played a pre- the president of Ukraine on a TV show, wins the election, and the world is not sure what to make of him. And yet, he has been the face of resistance in Ukraine. He's won the admiration of much of the world. And you know him. As you said, you met with him just 12 days ago. Talk to us about Zelensky. Tell us what you think of the kind of character he, ha- he shows, the courage he shows, and your conversation with him as recently as just days before the invasion began.
1: So
2: before I talk about President Zelensky, let me read you something about the First Lady of Ukraine. This is what I have a hard time getting through this, by the way. If I choke up, then just give me a moment. This is what the first lady of Ukraine said. I will not have panic and tears. I will be calm and confident. My children are looking at me. I will be next to them and next to my husband and with you. We have a team of real leaders, real leaders in Ukraine. <laughs> These people get it and they are about it and and we need to be supporting them. So my hat goes off not only to President Zelensky but to his wife. And I think they uh in they are an example and a model to the world of what the Ukrainian people are, who are standing up to Russians, who are laying down in front of tanks, who are blocking roads with their bodies as this Russian column, uh, approaches. So, um, uh, good things are happening. Now, let me just say this as a, you know, people accuse me of being a, uh, Europe file or a Europe apologist mm-hmm. or whatever. That's pretty easy to understand. I've lived there eight times and served there eight times. Both of my daughters were born in Germany. Um, so I have always been way more than half full on NATO and our NATO partners. But this event has really awakened NATO. It is exactly what Mr. Putin didn't want. NATO is now closer than ever. Germany is now out front and leading, and they're making investments that are going to make a big impact on the ability to stand up to Mr. Putin in the future. And, I mean, this is just, to me, he's getting exactly what he didn't want. We in the United States are moving more force to Europe and moving them into the Ford area. If you read those two documents Mr. Putin gave us and said sign them or we'll have other measures, well, we now understand what the other measures were. But if you read those two documents, he demanded that we back up in Europe, that we move our forces out of those border areas, et cetera, et cetera. He's getting exactly the opposite. And that's a good measure by NATO. And I'm proud of how NATO is at least leaning into that.
0: General Breedlove, to me, that is the perfect uh, uh, moment uh, to thank you for being part of this conversation. It really has been extraordinary to watch the world react to the barbarity of the Russian invasion, the illegal criminal invasion by Putin's forces into Ukraine. Um, I'm so grateful to you for being with us. And I, I also want to say how fortunate we are here in Georgia uh, to have the Sam Nunn School and be able to tap into the expertise of people like you who have been part of that for so long. But, and finally, General, let's give a shout out to the 3,800 to 4,000 soldiers from the southeast coast, from Fort Stewart, from Hunter, who have now been dispatched uh, to Europe to support NATO there and to be called upon if they are needed. Our hearts go out to them and to their families. But General Breedlove, thank you so very much. The door is open for you. At any point that you would like to join us as this continues, we would, of course, love to have you back. But thank you so much for being with us, General. Thank you all. Let's take our final break and come back, and we'll have a few minutes with uh, Tammy, Allen, and Kevin. Kevin Riley, Alan Abramo, it's Tammy Greer with me uh, today. Boy, thank you all. You all asked such wonderful questions of general breed love. Uh, Tammy, I want to just uh, and, and let's take a few minutes. We're I don't want to move on to other issues because we're running out of time already. But Tammy, your question I thought elicited a really fascinating response. Why do we care? And I think why it was interesting and important is we know that certainly before the invasion, Americans really weren't paying attention to Ukraine and the threats that Putin was making in Ukraine. But once the invasion started, the stakes obviously changed enormously, Tammy. And so I thought his answer to your question was particularly important, Tammy.
4: Yes. And I also find, um, and probably because my children right now are studying World War II, so to for to see kind of the correlation between um, the, this encroachment onto sovereign land, um, and then you know one may argue that there was a tempered response at the beginning when you saw some of these actions taking place. Um, you know, at at first during before World War II, you know, there's a sit back and wait response. Why should we enter? And um, to get people to understand, you know, it, it may happen, quote unquote, over there, yet it, it still has an impact to us in this country and to our allies across the world. So um, I really want us to kind of bring it home to everyday folks who are not in the political and historical spaces all the time um, to really um, feel the, the the need for a collective community um, in this case
3: Alan? well um, to bring this back for a moment though to our domestic political situation um, I, I still worry a great deal about the the way that the uh, deep partisan divisions in this country are going to uh, affect the the way, the way that our uh, policy toward Ukraine in response to the invasion plays out. Um, You know, until the invasion itself started, it seemed like there were some pretty deep divisions uh, within our country, uh, and particularly, frankly, within the Republican Party, about what we should be doing over there, and even, in some cases, about which side we should be on, which was pretty remarkable. Uh, now, Now, that's kind of moved into the background now. It's still there, I think um you know we're not we're not seeing much sympathy expressed uh, right now for for putin and for the russians um you know but i still think that um there's going to be a, a lot of pushback against uh against uh, biden's policies here uh and against any uh, attempt to by, on biden's part to uh increase the u.s uh, u.s involvement there uh on on the, on the argument that No, we've got our own problems. And, uh, you know, as a Republican Senate candidate in Ohio uh, Mm -hmm. uh, recently said, why should I care about Ukraine? You know, why aren't we sending troops to our own border with Mexico? I mean, these are the sorts of things we can expect to hear uh, in in, in the coming days and weeks, because this, you know, we're not going to have an easy, you know, uh, there's no easy way out of uh, of this. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to take uh, off to get ready to go to class. (laughs) All right.
0: All right. Thank you, Alan Abramowitz, for being with us today. Kevin Riley, um, you sent me a note uh, uh, a little while ago, uh, a text saying uh, you thought that uh, General Breedlove made some news uh, on our show today. What are some of the things you heard him say that you thought were particularly pertinent?
1: I think the most important thing is that he's going to be out there today uh, urging A uh, modified no-fly zone I mean I I don't remember the technical definition that he gave and I don't have the expertise so you have the man who had a crucial role in understanding the political realities uh, of Europe and led NATO who's saying there needs to be a no-fly zone it needs to be very carefully attended to and thought about but we have to do something and that against the backdrop of his clear belief not enough is being done by the West to help the Ukrainians. And I just think that, you know, I mean, we could argue about how loud a voice and how important a voice he is, but he's certainly a well-informed voice. And I think that's important.
0: I, you know, I thought it was interesting. He did not want to talk politics. You know, he he doesn't want to get into a partisan fight about all of this, but you know, it's interesting. He did say, he was the Supreme Allied Commander when the Russians uh, went into Crimea, Crimea. Uh, and we heard him talk about that saying the sanctions didn't work. We didn't get we didn't uh, push hard enough uh, to slow Putin down. And so that has empowered him and uh, uh, given him uh, the belief that he can continue moving forward today. So in a way, he he was kind of expressing a political point of view i thought tammy even though he didn't want to talk about it directly but he said he thinks now our sanctions may be in fact effective for the first time
4: yeah and, and i get it um it's appropriate to have um you know former or still military retired um, uh, leaders not to get into the Partisan politics of it all. At the same time, his voice is very critical because he has—he still receives briefings. He still understands. He—he general just talked about visiting Ukraine. So his uh, perspective is valuable um, to all of us, not only to those that are in um, elected office, also those of us who are hear, listening, understanding, um, and have skin in the game as well. So I think his voice is necessary um, to talk about um, these issues in a holistic context and not just from a narrow perspective.
0: Kevin, before we have to leave, we're running short on time. I want to give a plug for our profession. We're under fire a lot these days, journalists, uh, people accusing us of not being fair, not being balanced, whatever. Watching journalists in Ukraine on in real time, minute by minute, telling us what is happening there, um, showing courage in the face of of, of bombardments, of rocket fires and the like. I I have to say I'm incredibly proud of uh, our profession uh, today, Kevin.
1: Yeah, I hope it reminds people that we journalists, whatever our role, whether at a city council meeting or an international correspondent covering a war, you see these folks, they cannot help themselves. They, they believe the world needs to know, no matter what the risk to themselves
0: Kevin Riley, uh, Tammy Greer. Well, the show developed in ways I wasn't expecting. We thought General Breedlove would spend a little time with us. He was so fascinating that we gave him as much time as possible. And thank you both for the questions you asked him and your observations on the show today. Tammy Greer, Kevin Riley. take care, both of you. Uh, we're out of time for today. We'll be back with a brand new show. We'll talk elect- elected uh, politics tomorrow with our panel. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care. Stay healthy. See you tomorrow.